this goody goody guys. Um, I'm feeling goofy right now. Um, yeah, so uh, this is our last week in the Exodus series, and um, so we've been journeying with the Israelites from their time in slavery in Egypt and through um, God's delivering of them from Egypt and into eventually the promised land. Um, and I was talking on the phone with Kiara this week, and she was like, you have the easiest passage in Exodus to preach on, because today we're going to be talking about the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea. And, um, and I was like, yeah, it kind of feels like hunting at the zoo to like go in and compare the parting of the Red Sea to the cross and point us to Jesus and all that. It's definitely true. <laughs> the passage does all the work for you here, but, um, but that's where we are today. So to this point, um, the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh's oppression. And then um, we've seen in this series how God comes in close to his people and their suffering and desires to set them free. Um, we've seen God do many wonders in the land of Egypt in the form of plagues, um, testing Pharaoh and uh, demanding him really to set the people of Israel free. And we see that time and time again, Pharaoh hardens his heart, and eventually God hardens his heart um, to say no, um, or more specifically to say yes and then say no. Um, but eventually, um, Pharaoh relents, and the people of Israel are given permission to leave Egypt and go out into the wilderness. And so that's where our passage picks up today. Um, we're starting in chapter 13. Um, we have seen how God has worked in the midst of the powers of empire and how he's used even the ugliest, nastiest parts of empire together, worked them together for the good of his people. Um, and importantly, too, we've also seen the many ways in which the person of Moses ultimately points us to the person of Jesus. If you remember, Moses, like Jesus, was born into oppression from empire. Moses, like Jesus, was born at a time where the king had given a decree that all males, infants, newborns were to be slaughtered. Um, Moses, like God, was called to set his people free. And Moses, like God, also had experienced oppression and persecution at the hands of the people he was setting free. So the person of Moses is pointing us to the person of Jesus. And we're going to continue with that today, too. So, um, Sav, if you could throw that up, starting in verse 17. This is where our text starts. Now, Moses was tending the flock. Nope, that is not it. <laughs> oh, shoot. My slides aren't in there. That's okay. All I had was scriptures, um, which I have um, here. So, we are in Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 through 18. Um, let me pull it up on here, and I'll just read those. Okay. Um, all right, so starting in 17 into verse 18. So when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. So this is the first place I want to stop and just point out here um, what God's doing. So they're heading in one direction, and then God looks ahead and sees what's coming. It's the Philistine army, and he sees that his people who had just been in this place of oppression and slavery 
They just weren't ready mentally and physically to face that. And he knew that if they took one look at the Philistine army, they would turn around and they would head back to Egypt. And so in his wisdom, in his perspective, he has them turn around and go in the opposite direction. Um, and I think it's significant that it says that that was the shorter way and God had them turn around and go the longer way. Um, because ultimately, like, God's ways can tend to be different than ours. But God, like, knows what he's doing. We can trust him with our deliverance. Um, uh, a guy named Rob Reamer um, that I've, I've read some of his books and listened to some of his stuff. He does the soul care stuff, if you're familiar with that. But he says this all the time. He was one of my professors in college. And he would say, Theology 101 is that God is smart and he knows things that we do not know. <laughs> That's what he would say. He was such, like, a, he's a simple, like, upfront dude but theology 101 God's smart he knows things we don't know and that's true here God knew things the Israelites did not know um, but he knew what they needed he knew that they they needed a different route he knew they needed a different way or else they would turn around and head back and um, and so I just think we see here uh, God is trustworthy we can trust him and I think there are times where what the Lord calls us to do aligns with what makes sense to us and it's all good like I use this example in the first service like I feel called to worship ministry right leading corporate worship stuff like that it's all good because I love music I love to corporately worship like so it, it all makes sense it's all good I can see where God's going with that right but there are a lot of times where the things that God is leading us into or calling us into don't quite make that much sense um I even think about that with when God called Moses initially at the burning bush. Moses' response was like, dude, I can't speak. I have no speaking abilities. I mumble over my words. I can't do this. It didn't make sense to him that God would call him to be this spokesperson and this leader for his people. Um, but God knows what he's doing. Um, and we can trust him with our deliverance. So um, we pick up this story. God has them stop, turn around, and go in another direction back toward the sea. So that's where they go. And then he has them turn around again and go back and camp somewhere. I don't remember the name of it. Um, but as they are camping there, um, God speaks to Moses and he says, I have this plan. Um, Pharaoh is going to realize, he's going to see you guys wandering around the desert, and he is going to think you're trapped. You're stuck somewhere between Egypt and the sea, and you're just like sitting ducks. And he is going to gather his army, and he's going to come out and charge against you. But I'm going to deliver you from the Egyptians so that they will know that I'm the Lord. And so... In the middle of the Israelites camping, this is exactly what happens. Pharaoh becomes enraged. What have I done? We've lost all of our free labor. And he gathers all of his horses, his chariots, and, and the, the fullness of his army. And they charge out into the desert. Um, and so the Israelites are camped. And they look up and they see like the fullness of the most powerful army in all of the earth charging toward them. And they turn around the other way and they see the sea right there. And so they respond in terror. If you could pull that up, Sav. Oh, no, you can't. You cannot do that. You could, you could sit if you want. I appreciate you. Thank you. Um, yeah. Um, so as Pharaoh, this is uh, in chapter 14, verses 10 to 12. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. Talk about a, like a poverty mindset. 
Slavery is a mindset. It's a real thing. Um, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have done better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Um, I found this interesting. <laughs> it's like they had these things prepared. Like there's some like cleverness to this. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us in the desert to die? It just kind of shows the mindset there, just waiting for something to go wrong in this. Um, and just like not able to trust you know, what the Lord was doing. But that's their response, all driven from fear. And then Moses responds with what would definitely be the most commonly recited passage in all of Exodus. If you've heard anything, you've probably heard this. Moses tells the Israelites, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The enemies you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Um... And so I think this shows us a couple of things. And the first is that in light of the fact that God is fighting this battle for the Israelites, in light of the fact that, the, that God has already devised a plan, he has already set this thing in motion, and he has promised deliverance. He has told Moses, I will deliver you from the Egyptians so they know I am the Lord. And Moses stands and tells the Israelites, the enemies you see before you today, you will never see again. Um, it allows them to return to a position of rest. You know, you need to only be still. And the still in that, um, one of the translations there, one of the definitions is silence, total silence. And I think that's in response to their crying out, right? Because the people are just afraid. And so they're crying out, what is going on? Why didn't you leave us in Egypt? Were there no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to suffer and die? And, and in all of that, they couldn't even hear the Lord's voice. Um, because God's response was like to Moses, why are, you, why are you guys crying out to me? Go, start moving, start moving toward the sea. They couldn't even hear the voice of the Lord in that. And so the command was to just be still, be silent. I have this and know that I'm God and I'm good and it's going to be all right. Um, and so I think that speaks to us. Like we talk about this a lot in our culture here. We don't have to strive. We don't live our lives from a place of striving for acceptance we don't live our lives from a place of striving for performance or striving to be in control. We don't live our lives from a place of striving to win our battle. The Lord has already said it is won, it is over, it is finished. Um, and we can live, we truly can live and fight our battles from a place of rest. Um, and I think the other thing that this shows us is that we can fight our battles from a place of privilege. Um, so if you look at this situation and you see the Egyptians are here, and they are powerful, they are mighty, they are the empire of the day. They've got all of it, right? And this is the fullness of Pharaoh's army, and they are mad. They are upset. They are riled up. They are ready to go. They have no limit to the resources at their disposal. And then you've got the Israelites who had just spent years in, um, in oppression and in slavery, and that slavery had been intensifying toward the end of their time in Egypt, right? Like, I had to go gather their own straw but still make the same amount of bricks. It was dry. It was killing them. They were a weak, vulnerable people. And then between them is the sea. If you look at the situation, you would obviously say the Egyptians are coming into this situation with the, the fullness of privilege. If privilege is a thing, the Egyptians had it. They had everything. And the, and the Israelites, not only were they undermanned and under-resourced, but their mindset was not a mindset of privilege, you know? It was a mindset of, like, these people own us. They dominate us. Like, there was nothing in this situation that points to the Israelites having privilege. But then God speaks up and says, no, I'm going to deliver you from them and into the promise. And I'm going to fulfill this thing. And the, the enemies you see right now, you will not see ever again. 
you know what God does is he takes the privilege out of the hands of the Egyptians and he puts it in the hands of the Israelites, right? And that's what the Lord does. Like, we may feel like we are weak and vulnerable and unable to do any of this on our own, and, and pretty much we are. <laughs> um, but you know what? We don't just fight from a place of rest. We now fight from a place of privilege. Um, and it's not the privilege of the world. It's not this, it's not empire's privilege, you know, that like holds power and lords it over. And none of that lasts anyway. But it's this eternal, everlasting, actual, real privilege because we know that this fight is the Lord's. And so like this, these words, um, you know, they allow us to fight from a place of rest and a place of privilege. Um, the Lord will fight for you. You need to only be still. Um, see okay so the lord tells the israelites to move move toward the sea and then he has moses hold out his staff and stretch it out over the sea and then i'm going to pick it up again in um, chapter 14 verses 21 and 22 then moses stretched out his hand over the sea and all that night the lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land the waters were divided and the israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left um, and so in this the israelites are literally able to pass through the red sea on dry ground with a water a wall of water on their left and a wall of water on their right and this gives us such a beautiful picture of what Jesus did at the cross for us. Um, because the Israelites, where they stood in that position before the waters were parted, before they crossed through, that is quite literally where we have all been. That's what we were born into, this place where the power of sin and death had all the control over us. The Egyptians were coming. Power of sin and death was coming. There was no way to escape it, and there was no way to cross that sea to get back into right relationship with God. We needed a deliverer. We needed a Messiah, a Savior. And so here comes Jesus, who, through the power of the cross, through the work of the cross, creates this way where there was no way and allows us to cross through on dry ground, um, and he delivers us from our enemies. So God made a way for us to come to him through Jesus. So as we see the Israelites crossing through to the other side, we see ourselves crossing through from what, from what like was sure death, what was certain destruction into what is certain life. Um, and so we see ourselves in that. We see because of what Jesus has done. Um, and it is good. It is good news. So the Israelites are able to cross through and they get to the other side. And then um, they turn around, and the Lord gives Moses another command, picking it up in 27 and 28. Um, As the Lord commanded, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing from it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Oh, it had flung the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, and not one of them survived so we see here that like there's this concept about god that we can trust it's that he takes the traps that the enemy sets for us and he uses them to conquer our enemies um so look at this so as pharaoh is in egypt 
he uh, no doubt is keeping tabs on the Israelites in the desert, right? They're seeing like what's up. And then as the Lord predicted, he saw that they're wandering around a bit and he starts to think, well, I'm going to go out and finish them once and for all. And so surely for him, the trap in all of this was the sea. He knew they were camped near the sea, and he knew I'm going to charge them with my whole army, and there's going to be nowhere for them to go. That sea is going to be their death, right? It's either the sea or it's us. So the, the Red Sea was the trap that Pharaoh had sent, that the Israelites' enemies had set to destroy them. And the sea became the very trap that God turned around and used to destroy the Egyptians. Which is good news, because... <laughs> I know is I don't have to set my own trap because the Lord does it for me, right? I don't have to set my own trap. And God doesn't even set a trap. He just waits for our enemies to set a trap and then turns it around and delivers us with it. So if you need another example of this, I was thinking of some others this week. Like think about Joseph, the trap of Potiphar's wife in the house. That became the means by which Joseph rose to second in command of all of Egypt and saved his people in the time of intense famine. That took place like right before our story. Um... Or how about like the trap that was set when Paul was arrested and it was supposed to end his ministry and end his life. And eventually it did, but not before his plat- it, like, it turned into this platform for him to stand up and declare the good news to the most powerful people in all of Rome. Yes. Um, God does this time and time again. Um, the traps that the enemy sets, the Lord uses them against our enemies. Um, I have a passage again. It's not up there, but I'm going to read this one. You don't have to go find it. It's in Psalms. David says this. David's another one, right? The trap that was set by him you know, for Saul to kill David, invited them to dinner, and then you know, threw a spear at him. Like there was this trap to end David's life. And in that wilderness season, David learns how to be a leader. Um, so even in David's life, um, he says, Since they hid their nets for me without cease, or I'm sorry, since they hid their nets for me without cause and without cause dug a pit for me, may ruin overtake them by surprise. May the net they had, they hid, entangle them. May they fall into the pit to their ruin. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord and delight in his salvation. This is our position. Every and every single trap that our enemies set against us, we don't have to go and try to fight our own battle and set our own trap. All we have to do is Give it to the Lord and let the Lord cause them to fall into their own trap. Because that's what all this is coming to. You know, if you're experiencing oppression from empire, empire's end is the trap. It's the net and it is the, the pit that it is digging for you is going to fall into it itself. It's what it's all coming to. Um, and so we can trust that. Um, God takes the traps our enemies sets against us and uses them against our enemies. Um, and again, that is good news. Um, it's good news. Um, oh yeah, I was also just going to say that like, even in the fact that the cross was supposed to be this shame, like not only did Satan want to put Jesus, oh, yeah, that's right. The best example of all of this is the cross. I forgot to get there because look, like Jesus was on earth and he is raising the dead and healing the sick and declaring the year of the Lord's favor and establishing this new kingdom and bringing this better word. Of course, the enemies of Jesus, Satan, wanted to bring him to death, right? And the trap through which Satan set to kill Jesus was the cross. 
But the cross became the very instrument by which we were set free and death was put to death once and for all, right? And not only that, but Satan wanted to shame Jesus. The cross was the sh most shameful way to die. To hang naked in front of a bunch of people was the most shameful way to die. Satan didn't want to just kill Jesus. He wanted to shame him too. But it says that Jesus shamed death publicly by his death on the cross. So all of that shame was turned around on our enemies. So that is the ultimate example of how God uses the traps the enemy set against us to conquer our enemies that happened with Jesus at the cross um, yeah it's good so <laughs> it is sorry the last thing I have is um, they they witnessed the Egyptians dead it says they saw them all washed up on shore so they literally saw their enemy conquered and it's so then from there um, we go into chapter 15 chapter 15 the first a portion of that is just a long song the Israelites wrote to sing about the God, uh, God's goodness and what he had just done. I'm going to read a little bit of this. Um, it says that Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And it goes on and on and on. So the Israelites experience the deliverance at the hand of the Lord. And they go, and as they're continuing on their journey, they go and they write this song. And they begin to sing it to the Lord. Um, and I think this is really big for us. Because if we look at this story in the context of their journey into the promised land, it was a big victory. But it wasn't the end of their journey. There was still a lot of things to happen between the other side of the Red Sea and the promised land. In fact, um, it wasn't the only time that God was going to part the seas for them. And this journey was going to happen again at a different time. Um, and, you know, at what happens that second time is... Um, they cross through the Jordan, and before they leave, the Lord has them go in and grab 12 stones from the dry portion of the Jordan that they had just walked through and set them up on the other side as a little monument in remembrance of what the Lord had done. And it says something about when they, when they come through in years to come, the children will ask, what are those stones there for? And they'll say, well, let me tell you what the Lord had done for us. Um, and so you know, those stones were set in place to remember the deliverance of the Lord. And honestly, that's what this song was for the Israelites. This song was like those stones. It was something to sing and recall and remember what God had done. And honestly, we're still doing that. Like, we are still to this day, thousands of years later, we are writing songs now still about what God did at that Red Sea. You split the sea so I could walk right through it and there's another one that came out recently. You have torn apart the sea. You've led me through the deep. Hallelujah. We are still writing songs about that. And obviously all of the other things that the Lord has done as well. We sing these songs. They're like these stones to remember what the Lord has done. Um, and so they're really important for us. It just started to make me think, like, where are the places that we have history with God? We were talking about this in Atlanta. If you remember, we, like, went up. Joel and I went to Atlanta a couple months ago. And we were hiking up behind... Uh, there's this really cool spot on the campus you went to school or went to college at. And it like there was a waterfall and then we went hiked up behind it and there's like kind of some white water and some rocks and we were hanging out. And you were saying up there, right? You had met with the Lord right there and um, it was just like a place for Joel that he had history with the Lord. He would go there and remember and he met the Lord there and 
Um, so this just started making me think about that, you know, where have I met with the Lord? And um, one example of that for me is uh, right at the end of college, before I graduated, I just like reached this point in my life where I, like there was this real crushing and pressing and breaking that took place. Um, and uh, right in the middle of that, or like right at the beginning of that, I remember being parked in my car behind a certain dorm and I was just like losing it, just crying out to the Lord. And this was the first time in my life that I really felt like there is nothing good in me and I just need Jesus. Like before it was like, oh, I need Jesus, but like there's also some righteousness, you know, type of thing. But it was like, no, this was the moment where I knew I needed the fullness of God and I needed me to just like be completely redone. <laughs> Um, it was a breaking, and it was a huge moment for me. And from there, this journey of, like, inner healing and, like, um, experiencing a deeper life of Jesus and the filling of the Spirit, all that stuff proceeded. But that's a place where I have history with God, and I can think back to that. I met God there, and his love met me there. And, um, you know, I just think, like, we all have these places, um, but they're important for us because we are we're on the other side of the Red Sea, right? We have eternal life. We have been adopted as sons and as daughters of the living God. Um, but we aren't quite in the promised land yet in the sense that we're still journeying, right? And things are still there. There's still abuse happening. There's still oppression happening. There's still pain and sorrow and mourning and confusion. And I think that we need these places of history with God. We need to look back at them and see where have we met the Lord? Where has he torn apart the sea so we could walk through it? Um, and I think those things like give us strength to keep going because we remember what the Lord has done. Um, and that's what those stones were for on the other side of the Jordan. And to, to me, I think that's what these songs are. These songs are so important for us to cling to, um, to just remember what the Lord has done. So, yeah, that's kind of where I ended it up there. I told you I didn't have, like, a great ending for my sermon. But I do think a good question to consider for us is in the middle of what we're going through now, as we remember and we see what the Lord did for the Israelites, what he did for us at the cross, um, like, look back at those things and see where do we have history with God? Because that is also our history. It's our heritage, you know? Like, we weren't there, but that's our history, too. So maybe following the Lord is new for you, but the Bible is full of stories where God met his people. Um, and I just think that those things are important for us to keep walking through and knowing that we don't have to fight from striving. We don't have to fight our own battle. We don't have to set our own traps. Like, we fight from rest. We fight from privilege. Um, and it's good.